Hi, everybody. Welcome back again. Rick Wagner here, getting it right here on KNZZ 1100 and 92.7 on the FM side. Kidulin 980 on the AM, Love 101.3 on the FM, and we are in a lot of other places as well as the Internet and podcasts. And you can check out our podcasts and some of the stories we talk about and a lot more stories we don't talk about on our webpage at therickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com if you're jumping there from our uh, Facebook page or something like that. Because we, of course, as political Vikings, are the major disruptors, is how I like to see myself, disruptive, sort of like standing up the meeting and saying, what did you just say? You know, that's kind of our, our, our job here. Anyway, so going to be an interesting day today, I think. Just looking at some of my notes. Hopefully, if we get to things, we're going to talk about everything from banking to enriching uranium, uh, as well as some ancient history, a little just sprinkled in there, just so there's a, an eclectic group of topics, but I think an enjoyable one because a lot of this stuff strangely comes together or at least paints a picture of the world. Our picture of the world now is kind of hard to figure out, isn't it? I mean, it's, where are we at? What's what's going on? What's it all about, Alfie? I mean, that's uh, kind of what we have to ask ourselves all the time. And that's why we try and keep this show a little bit different, is uh, we're trying to probe in some areas and, and sort of highlight some things and give some background on stuff that uh, you don't get that much. Now, for those of you that aren't, uh, you know, sitting at home wondering if you still have any money in the bank, you probably do. These banking problems out there, despite the hysteria from, you know, the talking heads on TV, which is their job. I mean, it's to get your attention. You have to have your eyeballs on them. Otherwise, you couldn't possibly be able to see all the advertising for various vitamins and things on there. And then how would those things stay on, on the air? You would have no news at all. What you have to look for is this this idea that banking is somehow special and that it's always safe because we of course know after 2008 that that's not the case it's also not that precarious the only thing that makes banking really precarious is behaviors and that's because banks don't have all of your money when they have it on deposit and that's been the case for a long long time because banks are allowed through regulation to loan out more than they have on hand in cash. The idea being it circulates through, builds interest. That's how the bank makes money, and that's how they pay interest, although darn little anymore, on people's money who put deposits in there, buy CDs and things like that. So the amount that they have out versus the amount that they have on hand is a percentage. And sometimes banks get over-leveraged, and that is that money that's supposed to be coming back in so they can relend it or pay back people that want it, doesn't. It gets stuck out there in a bad economy. Or they don't have any way to lend money because people have stopped borrowing money because the interest rates get so high. So they're not making any money off that. So that source of their income dries up. So that takes their cash on hand further down the line. And then part of this is just stupidity. This, the Silicon Valley Bank, when Republic's in trouble, Signature, you know, they are banks that, if you look at what was going on, especially in Signature and Silicon Valley, they didn't seem to be doing much banking in terms of people at the top. And if you looked at who were on the board of directors at Silicon Valley Bank, there was only one person, I think there's 13 people on the board of directors, but there's only one person, 12 or 13, that actually has any experience in banking or really in economics or anything like that. 
some of them are mega donors to uh, the, the Democrat campaign. Uh, some of them are just people that they want to have on there because they have connections. And they spent most of their time, if you look at uh, what, at least what you can find out about them, you know, out there for far-left causes and various shows they're putting on and dance videos at Signature Bank and endless parades of how virtuous they are and how much they support. And, you know, you fill in the blank of the cause and you know what they all are. In the meantime, no one seemed to be managing the bank very well. And one of the ways that a person protects themselves a little bit against fluctuations in all kinds of markets, and, and this does, this goes right down to farming or anything else, is if you can, you try and diversify a little bit. If it's possible to run two or three things at the same time that aren't tied into the same market, you're really safer. Now, sometimes if you have everything in one basket, that basket's value goes up, it's great. But that basket can go all the way down, and then there's nothing to protect you from it. So it's that's much of a gamble. And Silicon Valley Bank, of course, was tied into all the techs. And the techs have been up and down and all over the place. And what you get when you look at the board and the things they're doing, and not just the fundamentals of the economic piece of it, but the attention that's being paid by people at the top of the bank, you realize that there's no one steering the ship the assumption seems to have been that we're in Silicon Valley. There's all this money. I mean, we can't possibly be in any trouble. We just more just keeps flying in the doors all the time. Not so fast. Tech companies been losing a ton of money this last year. Been laying people off. Not so much money coming in from the tech. A lot of bad loans out there. I read in one economic story that their debt to asset ratio. Which you all know about that. We all have a debt to asset ratio. You know, we how much how much we owe versus how much we have, you know, that's paid off, that's, or especially if it's liquid or not. In other words, if we can do something with it right away. And so that's your ratio, right? If you have, say, $100 that is yours to pay bills with and your debt is $300, you got to do some pretty fast tap dancing to be able to get bills paid. Well, banks are able to do that because they're able to loan more money than they have because of the way the flow goes, right? There's a multiplier effect in banking. So they're allowed to do some of that. But then when the debt starts piling up, in other words, people aren't paying it back, you're not getting all of this um, deposits in because, frankly, the businesses that you're associated with, which are mainly now laying people off and having drops in revenue, aren't there, then the assets that you have go down and the debt, you know, still there. So I read where at one point they had 185 to 1 debt-to-asset ratio. Now, that was one of the stories I read. In other words, so what the story was saying, that for every dollar they had on hand, there was $185 that was owed, you, you know, that people had taken out they didn't have. So uh, you're not going to be able to go in and just get your money back on something like that. So apparently the government, and this is what's very interesting to watch, I did watch an animated show, uh, what was it, Thursday morning? There was this anime, remember the Muppets? Really great show. Apparently there was another little vignette of it. There was this tiny little, uh, white-haired Muppet that was talking to a bunch of people. I couldn't see who was operating the Muppet. They weren't doing a very good job. His voice was terrible. And it was called Yellen. Yeah, it's the Yellen Muppet. And it was saying that everything was just fantastic and it was going to be safe and that the banks weren't going to be bailed by the federal government. Well, how is that going to work if they're not? 
They're not getting purchased by somebody else that's going to take care of everyone. And right off the top, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Federal Deposit (laughs) Corporation, is going to be bailing anybody out that has a $250,000 or below. That's the tripwire, by the way. If a bank fails, your deposit, as most of you know, is insured to that amount, $250,000 in any one account. And I think it's more than that for joint accounts. might be $500,000. You'd want to check that out because uh, that's just off the top of my head. But if if it's not <laughs> – so where's the money coming from? She keeps saying that, but it gets very hazy, you know. And, of course, we know that most of the money is going to be coming somehow from the federal government – no matter how it flows, uh, a lot of this money to bail out this bank is going to come that way. And, of course, that goes back to our first point, is who was running this bank and who's getting hurt? Hmm. Could it be gigantic mega donors to the Democrat Party and the Biden campaign? I don't know. Let's guess. Ah, sure it is. I mean, most of these people on this bank are not wearing Make America Great Again hats. One of them is was prayed to the Shinto shrine because you're so upset when uh, Donald Trump was elected. So that gives you some insight into what they're doing. So it's the same old story of people taking care of their own that support them. But at the main main point is that there's a lot of innocent people who've put money in there, and a lot of these businesses don't have any other way to pay their people if they don't pay through the bank. Okay, everybody, thanks for hanging on there. I think computer cut me off there. I cut myself off most likely on the last segment. Uh, that's just what I do oftentimes to show that uh, sort of the egalitarian nature that anybody could do this. So, you know, we don't want to seem too professional out there. Anyway, we're back, and I was happy to get, and I wanted to work this in was, was good, and I wasn't sure until yesterday that we were going to even be able to do it. I get one of the, our city council candidates here in Grand Junction on. Now, for those of you listening other places, you have the same issues we do. And for those of you listening on the Internet and some of the other states, some of you are barely have a city. So, you know, these kind of topics pop up everywhere, and you got to participate in your local elections. We have Diane Schwanke here, who is the at-large candidate in the city council in Grand Junction. And Diane, prior to this, had just retired from uh, many years. I'm not going to ask you how long. Uh, running the Chamber of Commerce here in town. And so uh, we wanted to get her on. Thanks for joining us here, Diane. You bet, Rick. Thanks for having me. Yes, and, uh, you know, these are consequential elections at the local level that people in the past have not paid enough attention to or participated in, and I'm always complaining about it on the radio. I'm sure people are, like, rolling their eyes even now. But uh, it, it is so important. And Grand Junction is sort of at an interesting stage right now. I mean, uh it appears to me, and please, you know, correct me if you don't feel the same way, that we are sort of still in that idea that uh, we could just keep spending money and throwing money after projects and continuing with a, a, a very small town city manager system where people don't have the input into the executive function at all, and everything will be okay. Uh, you know, am I wrong? No, you are not wrong. Um, and... You know, the city budget now is um, $250 million, um, and I, I'm trying to remember the last time we did not have some sort of a tax increase proposed on a ballot. Um, so, you know, it, it really, right now, the, the city of Grand Junction's budget requires a lot more scrutiny, I think, than it's had in the past. Um, and the more I've looked at it, the, the more concerned I become. It's like, since when does... Seven million dollars of parks capital project come under the economic development headline, for instance, 
or in what world was our current city council when they granted our city manager the authority to spend up to a half a million dollars for fleet purchases with absolutely no oversight? Um, there's just so many areas in the budget that I think if it were more transparent and our taxpayers had a better opportunity to look at it and digest it themselves, um, there would be a lot more engagement on that. It's it's really something that I think has been overlooked. So what I'm trying to remember, because I know, but I can't remember what uh, the city manager bought with that uh, half million dollar uh, fleet budget for vehicles. So what, what did he buy? Well, <laughs> so this is the part that really kind of frosts me. Um, he went out and bought a paving machine and we have three private contractors that have the exact same paving machine that he bought in the community. Um, he bought that paving machine and then he put some of his city staff to work paving nine miles of riverfront trail. They required a week of training um, and it was work that really could have did out at that time. Um, and it it's one of those things that we've seen pop up time to time where city says that, oh, we have the capacity to do this in-house, and so we'll do it in-house, which ignores what the contributions to this community are from the private sector um, and the sales taxes that they could actually generate if they did these projects out. Um, as, as one of the other people running for city council said, we'd love to see the city manager drive that paving machine home from work some night, because it clearly was not a fleet vehicle. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, he had to drive it back and forth to work every day. I mean, you'll have to widen the parking spaces. He'll have to take two. But after all, he is the city manager. And my impression was he was carried into work every day by a sedan chair with uh, several people from the uh, from uh, the parks department, uh, hoisted him on their shoulders and carried them in. And he sometimes threw coins out to people as they clamored around him. To touch his to touch his robe and and you know perhaps have him place his hand on their head so that they might be healed and uh, so yeah I mean it's it's a ridiculous purchase and you're right I mean if, if we went out and tried to figure out uh, per square foot of uh, asphalt paving cost including the and you can't ask the city this most of the time because they won't include labor in it and all this other stuff because what they're paying their workers the cost of the machine the hours they put in. If you figure out the cost per square foot of asphalt that they're going to be laying down out there versus what you could get from a contract provider, I'll bet it would be an illuminating statistic. And this is what happens all the time. I am sure. Well, and here's the other thing that I've learned. Again, looking at the budget, is we did a department heads briefing um, in early February, and operations said, well, we have a project team. And I'm like, tell me what this project team is. And they go, well... We've had so much trouble getting seasonal employees. We just created 18, 19 full-time positions. And then we just move them around wherever we think we might need them. So they may be driving snowplows. They might be helping city parks and recs. So we went from seasonal employees um, to 18 full-time positions. And now we're looking for things to keep them busy all year round, which is the exact opposite of how if you were in business, you could operate. Yeah, you don't hire people and then sit around and see if you can find something for them to do. Right. That happened in Silicon Valley for a while, and they're seeing the results of that now with thousands and thousands of layoffs. When they discovered people sitting in the lunchroom all day and, you know, making YouTube videos of themselves. Exactly. Uh, so, I mean, this is what happens, and this is what happens in government all the time. And it's especially going to happen when, you know, you have what, what was intended to be a, a form of government that was for a very small town where... You sacrifice the direct election of the executive to 
an appointment because everybody knew everybody and you wanted to try and keep nepotism and things like that out of it. After a certain size, you don't want that system anymore. And I don't want to hear anybody else talk about some of the other larger cities that have city manager systems because it's a different kind of city manager system. The councils have completely different power than ours does. Ours has no power except to hire the city manager and the city attorney, approve the budget and pass ordinances. That's it. They don't mean to say about anything else. And that's yep, crazy that's in a it. town our size. And they want to keep it that way. And so uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You know, speaking of spending money, we have a very ornate recreation center on the ballot. I see this time, although it doesn't seem to be getting a lot of push because uh, it'll involve a tax increase and then uh, apparently an, an endless cash flow into it that uh, they would like to do. And what's your position on that? Well, I'm opposed to this ballot initiative. Um, and there's, again, I'm, I'm looking at the money side of all of this. And it's like, first of all, um, it, you put it in uh, what they consider to be the center of the city, but you're still, if you live on Orchard Mesa, you're six miles away from it. They haven't actually, with all of this been proposed, it's a $70 million project. By the time the bonds get paid off, 30 years from now, we'll double to $148 million. Um, and they haven't even put anything in for the wear and tear on Papson, which is one of our major East uh, corridors for the proposed 1,100 users that will be coming into it each day. Yeah, well, that's um, too. Pra- you're being too practical. I mean, what's wrong with you? Why do you hate? Why do you hate people who want to float in a saltwater pool? And they, and they all think it's. They all yeah. think it's. When I talk to people to support it, they act like it's free. It's not going to be free. It's not only going to pay for taxes. There's still going to be. A, you're still going to have to pay to, to go in there. You will still have to pay to go in there. Um, and, and, and the other thing, again, coming from a chamber of commerce background, you're going to be competing with the gyms. You're going to be competing with the climbing wall companies and, you know, the yoga studios and a lot of the private sector. Frankly, you're going to be paying for it with your taxes. Um, and you're going to be paying for it with your entrance fees. So you're going to be paying twice for some right. of the same services that our small businesses offer. Well, this is a terrible time to, to try and get do municipal bonding. And uh, and the, with the interest rates, and I'm for a while they were acting like they were trying to act like that cannabis money was going to help pay for this thing, but uh, they're so slow getting rolling that out because you know that's of course a, a need that everybody's just hankering for out there is some cannabis shops right. in town. Uh, so they couldn't really make that argument very well because they haven't collected a dime off of it. Although that's never stopped them from claiming things before. Um, well, and even even they had had these shops open the proposal. Um, two and a half million dollars that they would get in sales tax. And that is, if you talk to people in the industry, um, and you talk to the, the uh, folks that look at the cities in terms of marijuana use is actually going down, that's a pie in the sky number, even if the shops were opened. Well, yeah. When was the last time that an estimate, a revenue estimate from uh, on tax re- on tax returns in general, has proven to be correct? Because at some point, they you know, people figure out ways not to pay the tax. And with marijuana, they figured out once you make it legal to possess it, they figure it out by buying it from somebody else doesn't have to pay sales tax on it. Uh, I have one That's final right. question for you here, and that is yeah. it goes back to this financial situation with uh, interest rates and banking and so forth. And that is that the city Grand Junction has uh, a lot of legacy costs in its retirement fund, which is very generous. And things of that nature. Have you looked at what their long-term investments are? What are their bond purchases? And are they diversified? Because a lot of places get in trouble with uh, 
you know, this legacy cost builds up and builds up, and they haven't made very good investments. Have you looked at that at all? So um, we've got a little bit, and actually there is a lawsuit um, by the Grand Junction Police Union over this issue because of the fact that they have not handled the legacy costs, um, their retirement funds in an appropriate manner. Um, and I think that that's going to be a huge liability for the city of Grand Junction because I think at the end of the day it's going to be shown that that was not done properly and was not set aside in a totally separate fund and invested appropriately. Um, it was simply in their bank account getting one or two percent um, when the stock market uh, was doing extremely well for, you know, the past three years up until recently. Right. So um, well, I, well, we're gonna I get, think we're going to get pulled out, Diane. I'm sorry. But thanks for joining us. Diane Schwanke, candidate for at large. We'll be back. Oh, yeah. I love that bumper. Uh, anyway, for those of you that don't get to hear it out there, it's the uh, Ballad of Paladins, what I played for those of you listening on the podcast. Um, from the show, a lot of people call it Paladin. The name of the TV show from the 60s was uh, Have Gun Will Travel. man's name was Paladin, which, of course, is also a a noun of an Avenger or a King Ching's champion, something like that. And uh, that song is, of course, sung by the great Johnny Western. I'm guessing here, but I'm not so sure that last name was not maybe adopted for a stage name. Anyway, I was really glad to uh, talk to Diane Schwenke a little bit there uh, in the last segment because these are these are issues uh, we have to have. Now, you know, some of those are that we talked about are you know, sort of personalized to the city Grand Junction, but not that much. I mean, a lot of cities are in the same place out there. Um, either they are ruled by a corrupt system that does have a mayor, but the system is corrupt or ruled by uh, some sort of bizarre, unelected bureaucracy. So you constantly have to struggle to get that back. I mean, if you want to talk about an unelected bureaucracy that we complain about in uh, Washington all of the time, and to some extent in our state capitals, there's nothing like it in a city manager system <laughs> where you where you elect a council whose main job is to hire a city manager to do what they want within very broad parameters in many cases. And... The only way you get rid of them is the city council has to get rid of them, which means the city council has to worry that you're going to get rid of them if they don't get rid of this other guy. And the flow of information is always attenuated. You don't know who to comp- complain to or what's going to go on. So, yeah, I mean, if you really want to look at a system that is ripe for control by unelected bureaucrats, that's one of them. I mean, we complain about our federal system, but this one's it's, it's built that way. And it, it, had a per- it has a purpose. In certain situations, it's one of those where it's it's not great, but you know, at it, in its time, it's probably a serviceable system until you gr- outgrow it, which should be fairly quickly, unless you know you just stay very small. Anyway, so I was happy to talk about that. The other thing that I think we want to bring up is something we mentioned during that interview, and that is that you have to look at your cities, and this do, this matters for everybody out there. It doesn't matter if you live in a big city, probably worse than a big city, or even a small town. Your taxes and things that go into these trust funds to make sure that uh, these legacy costs, which is kind of a broad term for money that you owe retirees and people who have uh, had, you know, injuries on the job and you're paying into workman's compensation, but really legacy costs for like retirement and things like that. Uh, a lot of these towns are pretty generous. If you look at California, some of the small towns, their retirement just makes your jaw hit the floor in terms of what these guys are making as retirees, much less working. And so some cities, small towns, you know, nobody looks at this to see how are you paying for this. I think they imagine that the, the, just the taxes that go in pay for this. Not really. 
The cities have to invest this just like you would to pay this off in the future. Because a lot of these things is you not only have to look at people you're paying now, but you have to say, well, how many people do we have on the payroll be retiring in the next five years, 10 years, two years, whatever? And, you know, will we have enough money to pay them at the rate that they've been promised? Now, lots of times you look at this and you say, oh, my gosh, these people are making tremendous amount of money because they're public employees and that's really high. You'd never get paid that in the private sector. And that's some, a discussion you can have. Even though I understand the discussion very well and, and, you know, feel a lot the same way, if someone has been promised something and they've sort of targeted their financial future towards that promise, you have to honor the promise. Even if you're not crazy about who made the promise and what it means. So you have to figure out, do they have enough money for this? And they have to make these diversified investments. And some cities, and we're discovering these banks, some of these larger banks, particularly the woke banks, have not been very good at either diversifying or making wise choices in where they put the money to earn interest or income from to pay all of these people's retirement. And you might be sitting out there, you might be one of these people that are expecting a retirement at some point, and it might you know, be in your interest to check and see if it really looks like the city or the town or whatever, or the county or the state for that matter, but certainly those lower ones uh, are going to have the money to, to pay this because there's a problem. And as was mentioned in that last interview, police union where I'm at has been looking at this and saying, hey, you're mismanaging the money. We may not have the money in the future. We need to, you know, if you want to get a better understanding, I guess you need to look that up. But uh, it's just an example. And uh, so, you know, that you, you want to say, are, are you doing this right so that it looks like we're going to have the money to do this in the future? And uh, I don't know how that particular one's going, but, you know, that's just the kind of inquiry people need to make from time to time is, you know, do you have it out there? What I see is that people don't really pay attention to that because we have this idea that it's all coming from the taxes that are being paid in, just not enough money to spend and uh, fund legacy costs. You have to make investments just like you folks do in order to retire or to pay off, you know, people's college, your kid's college or anything like that. So it, it's a good idea to just take a look at that, you know, and if, uh, like I always say, if they've got all their eggs in one basket, you better really take a good hard look at that basket. So here's the other thing. Uh, let's see here. Oh, by the way, and this is just something kind of for local people. I was just looking at one of my newsletters I get. I belong to the Orchard Mesa Gun Club here in town. And it is just such a good little organization. It's on Orchard Mesa here in Grand Junction. And many of you may not where that's at, but those that do, do. <laughs> and uh, they got a great little range up there and some pistol pits. And uh, I really like their stuff. And uh, if you're interested in these guys, and they do, they do, people do a lot of work up there for very little or no <laughs> recognition or compensation. And you can take a look at their, their website is uh, omgunclub. That's omgunclub.org. Take a look at them, and uh, there's a contact place on there if you're interested in joining up. I'd recommend it if you like to shoot. Uh, it's relatively close. We have a great shooting range in Cameo, Colorado here, but it's a little ways out of town, and uh, these guys do a good job. So that being said, and having just wildly irritating liberals that might have accidentally tuned by the show to hear about a gun club and, you know, shooting, and if they certainly if they listen to the bumper, they've probably driven off the road at this point. Let's talk about something interesting and some science, too. Let's talk about making nuclear weapons. Now, I'm not suggesting you go down to the basement and start taking notes now. <laughs> I say, well, could I make one? Could I make a nuclear reactor in my basement so I wouldn't have to have to sell 
uh, pay them all this power money? Not quite yet. But the reason I thought about this is, is some of you have probably seen, we had this big story that popped up and then went away. In Libya, they had a bunch of yellow cake uranium disappear that had been stockpiled there by uh, Gaddafi uh, for his nuclear program, which he shut down. Uh, as well, He's also been shut down, as we know. And so a bunch of it went missing. And everybody, there's a big tizzy about it. And it's essentially yellow cake. And people who have ever been in the industry, particularly if you're near us here in uh, western Colorado, we have a little of it here, but they've done a lot of uranium mines in Utah and places like that. And the yellow cake is just kind of a mildly refined version of the uranium ore. And it's on its way, right, to be made into uh, more enriched uranium. And the reason I want to talk about it a little bit is we did this a few years ago, and people seemed to like it and asked me some questions about it because I'd done some research. And because we get these ter- – every time something comes up, nuclear war, nuclear bombs, you know, lost nuclear material, and nobody explains what the heck they're talking about or how it's done. And my audience – because I've talked about this before, people say, "Oh, there's, you, know, you know, people don't—they're not educated in that way." If you talk about that, they'll be no, they're not. My people are not bored. They are smart people out there, and they get this stuff, and it enables you to understand in context what the news people who don't listen to it or understand what they're talking about uh, are talking about. So, first off, when you enrich uranium, right? That's when you take uranium two thirty-eight. Okay, that is plain old uranium. You dig out of the ground, mildly radioactive, but stable. And then you want to, by enriching it, it is to increase the percentage of unstable uranium, which is what they call an isotope, which means it's missing some of the uh, atomic material to keep it stable. So it's more unstable, right? So it gives off more radiation. So it happens it's unstable. And it is well more on the way to an atomic bomb, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And uh, now, if you take a bunch of uranium-238 and you were to pull it all apart, only less than 1%, about 0.7% of it, will be uranium-235. That's the unstable isotope of it, right? That's more radioactive. And that's what you're going to use for nuclear weapons and also for nuclear power plants and so forth. And there's a couple of methods that you can get that out of it. You know, how do you get that out of it? How do you get that? Do you just sit there with tweezers? No. It would take you a long time. We used to do a method called gas diffusion, which is really expensive. And uh, what they do is they uh, convert the solid uranium into a gas. Heat it and stuff like that. Make it a gas called uranium hexafluoride. There you go. And then they push it back and forth through these barriers, porous barriers, and try and essentially sift it down, just like you would a gravel barrier, right? But it takes a tremendous amount of energy and time to keep taking this gas and try, passing it back and forth and trying to get this little tiny uranium-235 out of it. So what we've discovered works better is a gas centrifuge. And you people out there understand this, too, is when you put something in a centrifuge, if you just spin it, right? If you just take a piece of string and put a bottle on the end of it and put something that has two different weights of material in it, and spin it and spin it and spin it, the heavy stuff, the force of the spin pushes the heavy stuff towards the end of the bottle and the lighter stuff on top. So this forces the, when you spin them in these big centrifuges, it forces the uranium-238, which is heavier, back towards the back, and all that little bits of 235 that are in there come towards the top. Well, since there's so little of it, you have to spin them and spin them, and then you take less and less of it as you go, right? You take the the stuff that you're sure is just 238 out, and then you get a 
another centrifuge that takes a smaller amount and spin it and spin it until you finally get a serviceable amount of uranium-238, right, or 235, and you get that concentration up. I mean, when you get to nuclear power plants, okay, then the amount of uranium is only 3 to 5%, that 235. For research reactors, the kind that people are doing different kinds of research when they're experimenting with it, it's 12 to 20% uranium-235. But if you want to build a nuclear weapon, you need about, the material needs about 90% of it needs to be uranium-235, that unstable isotope. But remember, starts off at only seven-tenths of a percent of the uranium-238. So you can imagine how much uranium, regular uranium, you need to distill that down and make a small, tiny bit of that until you add up enough to make a nuclear weapon. And there's two ways that you can make it, that once you have this stuff, that uh, you make a nuclear weapon. And there's one of them's called the gun type, okay? And that's essentially, uh, you take uranium-235. Now you've got the uranium-235. And then you shoot them into each other, okay? Uh, with a conventional explosion, shoots them into each other hard enough that uh, they're so unstable that the collision between those two unstable pieces of uranium-235 creates a chain reaction, which releases the power of the atom. Remember, TNT is really a molecular explosion. An atomic explosion is at the molecular level. That's why it's so much more powerful. And that, what the atomic bomb is. They're much simpler to build, but they take a larger amount of that material, right? In implosion type, which what we use more now in our weapons, is uh, sophisticated to the point that it actually requires an even more unstable and radioactive material, which is plutonium. And they shape that up into like a sphere, right, like a tiny little basketball. And they surround it by, once again, regular explosives. And then all those explosives around this thing detonate simultaneously and push that 239 together, the plutonium 239, which is very unstable, starts a chain reaction and things blow up. That's how those are made. So now what you understand why these centrifuges in Iran that we keep talking about from time to time and this enrichment program, you see why it's so interesting. You also see why it's easy for them to say, oh, no, 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 you're sadly mistaken. We're just enriching this for our nuclear reactors because we want the power from it, despite the fact that they live on tons of oil, uh, which is always why it makes no sense at all. But remember, you know, for to have a power plant, you only need to enrich your uranium to about, Three to five percent uranium two thirty five, but we see all this equipment which they've been hiding by the way in Iran, trying to put these centrifuges underground now. For a long time they had them above ground, and we could say, look, there's all these centrifuges. If you're using all these centrifuges that are working down smaller and smaller and spinning it faster, you don't need those for that kind of enrichment. That that's you're way past that. You got to be enriching it a lot more. They got to get to ninety percent uranium two thirty five if they want to use that, or they got to steal some plutonium which people have tried to do, and uh, which is uh, very unstable and makes a big, big bomb. So that's how that works. And then really briefly, and I hope I'm not boring you, but this is, this is that way. You're going to know more about this when these people are talking about it and put it in context and know what to think. And when someone talks about an atomic bomb, an A-bomb, right, uh, that is nuclear fission. That is where they take a heavy atom like uranium-235 or the plutonium, and we split it apart by those two methods, right? 
the gun method or the uh, implosion. Mainly, more, much more likely implosion than newer newer weapons. Um, now, a hydrogen bomb, because people have said, well, what's a hydrogen bomb and atomic bomb? Or it's also known as a thermonuclear bomb or the H-bomb, is more powerful. It uses not only fission but fusion, like you find in the sun, in addition to nuclear uh, fission, to release an even greater amount of energy. And a hydrogen bomb, an initial fission reaction, like we talked about with a rectangular bomb, generates the high temperatures for a nuclear fusion to record. So in other words, a massive conventional explosion is what they use to trigger an atomic bomb. And a atomic that kind of atomic explosion is then used to trigger an H-bomb because then it makes it even hotter and creates fusion, which uh, is, what, is the kind of nuclear reaction that's in the sun. Um, and it's very power, powerful and much more powerful than an atomic bomb. Releases many times more energy, and uh, but an H bomb is much more complex and technically challenging, and you know ourselves, the Soviet Union, probably China, maybe uh, the folks in Israel might have uh, thermonuclears, H bombs, but anybody else is probably having you know if they get one, they're going to have an A bomb, an atomic bomb. It's simpler to build, although it's not something you can do on your weekends when you're puttering around outside in the garage, but it's. Uh, it's much simpler to build than the hydrogen bomb. So now you guys, and I hope it doesn't boring. I hope it's interesting because it, I, I find it interesting. From now on, when they're talking about enriching uranium and, you know, the H-bomb, A-bomb, and you're going to realize two things. Half that these people don't have any idea what they're talking about, and the stories are difficult to decide how important they are because there's no context on them. And the other thing that they have to remember, and every so often this dirty bomb thing pops up once in a while, somebody's going to have the dirty bomb. Well, they don't explain that very well. Well, a dirty bomb is simple. You take some of this radioactive material, and it doesn't even have to be particularly well enriched. Uh, and instead of trying to make a nuclear bomb with it, which is more complicated, you just pack a conventional explosive in the middle of a bunch of radioactive material, and then you blow it up. And it makes the surrounding area radioactive. It doesn't make the explosion any larger. It just creates more havoc. So that's what a dirty bomb is. And those, of course, are not particularly difficult to construct if you have the materials. That's why we do try and track very carefully all of any enriched material, where it's at, and this is one of the problems of Soviet Union is we don't know where it, a lot of their stuff is at. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell apart uh, in the 90s, uh, a lot of the records for where the heck some of their uh, materials went and even where some of their devices went apparently were not readily available to the people that took over. Now, I'm going to suspect that most of them have been found by now, but uh, it's hard for us to track them. And they probably have more warheads and things than we do. So that's something to think about. And there's also the technology with some of the simpler devices, these gun-type uh, nuclear warheads, that are the atomic nuclear warheads, the gun-type that actually can be fired, a battlefield ones. This is what they're talking about, tactical nuclear weapons. Battlefield nuclear weapons, they can, you know, don't even have to be fired from a missile. They can be fired from uh, artillery. And their, their yield, which is their explosive power, is nothing like we think of when we think of the big mushroom cloud in Hiroshima or the Bimini Islands, or rather uh, the Bikini Atoll, and you see in white sands, those, those pictures like that. But they're still 
wildly more destructive than an artillery shell. And, of course, they create a uh, nuclear radiation hazard around them that, depending on what type of fissionable material they use, um, the half-life can be quite extensive and ruin everybody's day in that area for a really long time. So, But those tactical nuclear weapons can have a much smaller area of destruction, but a much com- but compared to conventional artillery, they're not only more explosive pound for pound by, you know, quite a bit, but they also have a lingering effect that regular artillery is not going to have. So those are the threats that we look at when we're thinking about challenging nuclear powers. That doesn't mean we should cower in the shadows, but we have to see what the risk-reward is. You know, is it on our interest? That's one thing. And how we determine that is always difficult. You know, what, what is in our interest? You know, and in our interest doesn't necessarily mean today. It's, you also have to think of, is it in our interest, if we let this happen, what will happen in five years, right? Uh, if we allow them into this area, what are they going to be in five years and so forth? Um, and this is what's going on in Ukraine. And there's this big debate about how much it is in our interest and, you know, what if if they occupy Ukraine or part of Ukraine, you know, how bad is that? And everybody has a different opinion on it. But I would re- I would repeat that if you remember in the 80s, uh, when Ronald Reagan was in power, that the Soviet Union, not only they controlled Ukraine for a long time, but they had effective control over Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. They had control over Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and uh, now the Czech Republic and Slovia, um, and East Germany. <laughs> so they were a heck of a lot closer to the West than they would be in the Ukraine. I'm not suggesting one way or another, but you have to put those kinds of analysis together to decide what's your risk and your reward. And the fact that I don't hear a lot of that from our politicians, I find disturbing because the downside is pretty far down if you get somebody nutty enough. And unfortunately, what we keep seeing is it seems like there's a lot of nutty people out there and uh, the technology to have this. I mean, Pakistan is a nuclear power, by the way. There's a lot of people out there that may not have their head screwed on right. And you have to decide, you know, is it really worth going toe-to-toe with them? And maybe it is. And see if they back down or what the case might be or what strategic initiatives we have to have. But I will say this is our military leaders right now are not someone that we have much confidence in. I certainly don't. I know many of you don't either. So watch the news out there, my friends, and uh, analyze it. Take the, the information you have. And make sense out of what they're trying to tell you. We'll be back next week.